you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, the 26th chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you, and you'll find Deuteronomy chapter 26 on page 143 of those Bibles. And when you have found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand so we can honor and hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 26, beginning in verse 11, this is the word of the Lord. And you and the Levites and the aliens among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Then say to the Lord your God, I have removed from my house the sacred portion and have given it to the Levite, the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all you commanded. I have not turned aside from your commands, nor have I forgotten any of them. I have not eaten any of the sacred portion while I was in mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor have I offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the Lord my God. I have done everything you commanded me. Look down from heaven, your holy dwelling place, and bless your people Israel and the land you have given us, as you promised on oath to our forefathers." a land flowing with milk and honey. The Lord, your God, commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws, carefully observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared this day that the Lord is your God, that you will walk in His ways, that you will keep His decrees, commands, and laws, and that you will obey Him. And the Lord has declared this day that you are His people, his treasured possession as he promised, and that you are to keep all his commands. He has declared that he will set you in praise, fame and honor, high above all the nations he has made, and that you will be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we ask that you would bless the reading and hearing of your word this morning. Reveal yourself again to us through your word, the power of your spirit. We do pray that, Spirit of God, join now with your word. Change us, transform us. Help us love you deeply from the heart and obey you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week we looked at the first half of Deuteronomy chapter 26. This chapter is the last chapter in this very long section called the Law Section of Deuteronomy, the longest portion of the book. Began in verse, in chapter 12, and it concludes now this morning in chapter 26. Last week we talked in in the first part about the importance of worship, the need for us to wrap our lives in worship week by week. We even talked about how Monday through Saturday of our lives, in reality, should be a preparation to worship the Lord on Sunday morning, to give Him our best. If you missed the first part, you're going to have to catch up. You can hear the sermon online. But we left the worshipers last week bowing, 
together, bowing before the altar of the Lord. They had just placed before the Lord and the altar baskets that were overflowing with the best and the most beautiful of the harvest that they had just collected. They gave it to the Lord as an offering. When you worship the Lord, when you see Him in His glory, when you know that you have worshipped the one who is perfect light, the one who is true life, the one in whose essence is love, you'll be changed. And that's what worship does. It changes us into what? Well, that's what I want us to look at this morning. These changes that take place because we worship the Lord. And the first change that takes place is that you and I, as we worship the Lord in His glory, become people of joy. Look with me in verse 11. It says there, And you, of whom uh, the people of Israel... And the Levites and the aliens among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. Now when we see this word shall rejoice, it's not a verb. Which means it cannot take the command form and become an imperative. The Lord commanding us, you shall rejoice. Now here in this verse, in Deuteronomy chapter 6... What's translated shall rejoice isn't a command at all. It's more like a promise. It takes the form of an adjective. And, and what do adjectives modify? Yeah. Uh, and a noun is a person, place, or thing, right? And so the people of Israel and you and I, we are nouns. That's what we are. And so when we come to this shall rejoice, you can say it's a description of what worshipers are to be. They are to be joyful people. After you've harvested, after you've brought your basket to the Lord, after you've made this good confession of faith in the Lord and His glory and His goodness and the presence of many people, guess what? You shall rejoice. You will be full of joy. It's the way it must be whenever we recount The story of God. Every part of it is reason for joy. He chose you from among the least of all people. He called you treasured possession. He delivered you from slavery. He fulfilled His promise to you. He's given you a land that is flowing with milk and honey. God, in every way, has been a good, faithful, and loving Father. And the basket in your hand that's full of that beautiful produce is a reminder of what the Lord has done for you, and so you shall rejoice. Now look, add to that the future that the Lord has prepared for these people. Look in verse 19. The Lord has declared that He will set you in praise, fame and honor high above all nations He has made, and that you will be a people holy to the Lord your God As he promised. Listen, good days, better days lie ahead for the people of God who will faithfully worship and faithfully obey the Lord. And so, when you and I come to worship, recounting the goodness of God, you shall rejoice. Everyone, the Israelites, 
everyone else. And so we ask ourselves this morning, what adjective, what adjective, adjective describes you when you worship? And what adjective best describes you after you have worshiped and focused on Christ? In the upper room, the very last night of his life, hours before Jesus goes to the cross, he told his disciples, I'm going away. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I'm going to come for you so that where I am, you might be also. He promises them that night, I'll give you another counselor. He'll be with you forever. The spirit of truth. He tells them, I am the vine, you are the branches. He describes this intimate relationship that exists between him and his disciples. And then he tells them, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, that's what the Lord wants for us this morning. Full joy. Jesus' joy. And that's what he has for the disciples when they focus on him and when they focus on the truth that he has spoken to them. That's what focusing on Jesus, that's what focusing on truth does for us. It makes us people of joy. But Jesus has more to say to the disciples On this same night. And these words aren't nearly as pleasant as the first words we read. They don't really sound like reason for joy. Jesus said, If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. The time is coming when anyone who who kills you will think he's offering a service. To God. Jesus follows those words with this promise. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, but ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Here in the same context, hate, persecution, killing, Jesus talks about joy. And Jesus can talk about joy in this context because here's the good news. Jesus is in every context. Every context of all our lives, Jesus is there. So he tells his disciples, ask in my name, ask in my name. You're not alone. I'm in your context. And that's what makes your joy complete. And then for a third and final time, the same night, While Jesus is in prayer to the Father, his high priestly prayer, Jesus prays, Lord, Father, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. What's Jesus' context? You know what it is. In hours, he'll suffer horrifically on the cross and he'll die on the cross and yet he prays that truth the whole truth the truth about heaven that awaits them the truth about the persecution that faces them and all of it Jesus prays that they will have joy complete joy that's what he's seeking for the disciples and what he's seeking for you and for me as well joy is a byproduct of knowing Jesus 
Joy is a byproduct of worshiping in spirit and in truth. Believe me, I do not intend to be insensitive when I say this. But I must say it. Our context should not steal our joy. Some of you find yourself in a beautiful context right now. Newlyweds, oh, isn't that sweet? Little babies, if you can sleep, isn't that sweet? (laughs) Some of you find yourself in a context that's not so beautiful. A little grim, uncertain, even scary. But I believe because God... God's Word says it, that if you and I will focus on the person of Christ, if we'll focus on His promises, if we'll focus on His truth, His love for you, then you and I will have joy. The Apostle John was in the upper room. And he was sitting so close to Jesus that night that he could lean against Jesus. John was the only disciple at the cross The others had fled. John alone stood there beneath the cross and witnessed the crucifixion. John had personally experienced persecution and the exile and the isolation of exile all for the sake of Jesus. What does this man John write at the end of a very long life spent with Jesus? The first letter he writes, the first chapter, the first verse That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it, we testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to you. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Complete joy. That's what comes from focusing on, believing in, telling the story of Jesus who came for us, who lived for us, who died for us, who rose again and ascended to heaven where He right now prays for us. It's reason for joy. Again, not to dismiss real struggle and real suffering and real sorrow and not to heap guilt upon you. You're already low and now you have to feel guilty for not feeling joyful. That's not the point. The point is to believe in the promises of Jesus. And the promise is for for joy for those who love Him, who've placed their faith in Him as most of us have done. There's joy for us. If you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Christ for salvation, if there is no joy in your life, I want you to do this. Call me. Call my cell phone. You can get my number. Everybody's got it. Believe me, everybody's got it. (laughs) I would love to tell you the story of Jesus. I'd love to tell you about about the joy that he'll make a reality in your life. Listen, we don't have to think very deeply to realize why God wants His people to be people of joy. 
because Scripture extends this offer, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now the face that you make when you take a tablespoon of vinegar, which I do every morning, is quite different from the face you make when you take a tablespoon of honey. The honey is much more appealing. And so it is with people who have tasted the goodness of Jesus. Our joy says Jesus is good. And joyful people make a difference in this world for Jesus' sake. So we got to do what we have to do to be joyful people. And one thing we can do is to commit to worship, to being here together, to experiencing the glory and the beauty and the majesty of the Lord. So that no matter what context in which we find ourselves, we will be people of joy. The second change that should take place in us from being in the presence of the Lord is that we must become people who give to those in need. I'm sure you've seen the papers this week or at least online or on television that Donald Trump and the Pope have gotten into it just a little bit. Apparently, as part of his platform, or at least a campaign promise, Trump has suggested that we deport more immigrants and that we force Mexico to build a wall along the border at its own expense. The Pope was asked about that, and his response was this. A person who thinks only about building walls wherever they may be and not building bridges is not a Christian. Now look in verse 12, because I think we would have to call verse 12 not a wall-building verse, but a bridge-building verse. It says there, when you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. See, it comes naturally to us to build walls around our own families and our needs. It comes naturally to us to build walls around our churches and the need of our churches and to forget who lies outside of those walls. Who does lie outside of those walls? People of need. Widows here in this passage. The fatherless here in this passage. Aliens. Strangers. People who are different from us. People who are different from our family. They can make us uncomfortable because we don't know how to relate to them. Even if they're an American... They're from such a different cultural experience that we don't know how to relate to them. And so walls become convenient for us and they protect us and they make us feel safe. But here God calls not for walls that keep people out, but for bridges that lead to those outside of our walls. Bridges that are going to take us, lead us, to the disenfranchised, to those who need, to those who would not have, according to these verses, if God's people did not give. A result of 
focusing on the God who has blessed us in so many ways. A result of focusing on a God who has given so much to us is looking beyond ourselves. Where, Lord, are the people in need that we can help? The tithe that's described in these verses comes around every three years. And it's separate from the tithe that we looked at last week. This tithe is not taken to the temple. It's not given to the Lord there. This tithe is taken up in the towns and the villages. And when all that tithe has been collected, it is then distributed to the needy in the town, to the needy in the village, the widows, the fatherless, the aliens. People, for whatever reason, because they are in that situation, have nothing for themselves. God's people are to provide for these people. I saw a bumper sticker this past week. I've never seen it before. It was a quote from Margaret Thatcher. The trouble with socialism is that eventually you run out of other people's money. So, you know, in the midst of traffic, in the midst of this politically charged atmosphere, I found myself cheering around, Maggie, you go, girl. But see, giving is not a political issue. Giving is a heart issue. And you cannot legislate compassion and you cannot legislate generosity. You can't. And you can't expect anybody to be motivated to work if they think somebody's going to knock on their door and say, hand over 90% of what you made and let me decide what, uh, what I'm going to do with it. No, it's not going to work. Margaret is right. Eventually, you're going to run out of other people's money. So this is where you and I, as believers in Christ, can make a difference in our world for Jesus' sake. Not because it's demanded of us, Not because it's legislated upon us, but because we are compelled when we behold the goodness and the radical generosity of God toward us to give to others. I'm full of stories this week, but yesterday I went to vote. It was late, the polls were almost closed. And into the parking lot of the polling place pulled a a sleek, beautiful, shiny, black Rolls Royce. It's not the car that I saw the bumper sticker on. (laughs) It was four spaces down from my 18-year-old Mercedes, which I've tried to hide with my body. So I said to the man and his wife when they got out, wow, that is a beautiful car. And then I said, Thank you for confirming that I am voting in the Republican primary. <laughs> I'm going to get shot one day. But, but, but I said it. I said it. He laughed. <laughs> uh, but I was reminded in that moment that stereotypes, you know, they, they're not completely unfounded. And then I was reminded that you and I, and Redeemer Presbyterian Church, we are in a denomination that is predominantly, exceedingly white. We're in a denomination that is predominantly, exceedingly middle class, upper middle class, upper class. 
We are in a denomination that is exceedingly Republican. And I'm not going to talk about why that is or, or if it should be or how it could be changed, but, but I think we should do this. Ask ourselves, how can we use the blessings that come to us because any one of those things are true about us? How can we use those opportunities that God has given to us to be generous to those in need around us? If we could harness the resources in our denomination, financial resources, if we could harness the position of influence that God has given to so many in our denomination, if we could harness those things for the kingdom, and if we could be committed to radical generosity, we could get beyond our walls and our demographic, and we could build bridges into this world that truly make a difference for Jesus' sake. We can help those who are on God's heart. We can help those that God does not want neglected. Those who don't have position, those who don't have resources, those who often don't have an advocate to speak in their behalf. These are the ones that God does not want overlooked. He requires us to care for them. And so what we need to spend time doing as a church, and that's all of us, including the 22 that were in the new members class yesterday. (laughs) We've got to be intentional about our bridge design. We've got to be intentional about our bridge design. It isn't easy to to design those bridges, is, is it? The bridges that will take us out of here and into the world. And we try, and we build bridges, and you know what? Sometimes those bridges collapse. And there are a lot of you here this morning that have a heart for bridge building. And you know our attempts, and you know some of those bridge collapses. Does that mean we give up? No. Go back to the drawing board. Start designing a different bridge that the Lord might use to be more effective toward this end. In the light of who God is, we must be people who give generously to those in need. There's a final change. You awake? Thank you, Jim. And the final change is that after we worship, you and I have got to become people of commitment. And so we come now after 13 months, 13 months, to the very end of this law section of Deuteronomy. And in this section that we've been looking at for these 13 months, God has traveled with his people. And he's traveled with them and taken them to a place that's in the future. And he's described for them a life that will be once they've entered the promised land. But now, at the very end of this section, God brings them back from the future. And he puts them in the present. Look, with you, if you will, at verse 16. The Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees. Now, in verse 16, I like almost every other translation better than I like the NIV. Because every other translation retains the word order of the Hebrew and the emphasis carried by the first position. And those translations read, this day the Lord commands you. This day the Lord commands you. Today the Lord your God commands you. The emphasis is there. 
Today is the day. You and I need to hear the call to today. You and I have got to come back from the future. We've got to come to this day, this moment, this decision that we must make to obey the Lord. You and I, we overburden the future with what we're going to do. And just as God has painted a picture in these verses of the future for the people, we paint beautiful pictures for our futures, don't we? And we paint a picture, we say, oh man, when I finish school, then I'm gonna. When I have this much money, then I'm gonna. Man, when I get married, then I'm gonna. Well, you know, after we have children, then we're gonna do this. When I just have more time, then I'm gonna. Listen, that's great. Set goals for yourself, bold goals. You and the Lord together. Great things you want to accomplish for the kingdom. Go ahead and do it. But listen, don't neglect this day. This is the day the Lord has given to us. This is the day we must commit to obey and serve Him. This is the day we must trust Christ. That's why Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So let's come back from the future. Come on, come with me. The future we've planned but aren't guaranteed. And let's live in this moment and obey in this moment and trust Christ in this moment. Think about Moses. What if he did what we so often do? Moses isn't going to go to the promised land. He's not even going to live there. What if Moses decided, well, I'll wait until I get to the promised land to do this. (laughs) Too bad. He's never going to make it. It's now, in this moment, I do a lot of premarital counseling. And I've counseled a lot of you all. And couples come in. They're so cute. And you can tell, man, they're hanging a lot of hopes on marriage. (laughs) Oh, and they think, man, when we get married, there's going to be this drastic change. Oh, I know that when we get married, he'll start blah, blah, blah. Oh, I know. When once, once we're married, she'll stop. Blah, blah, blah. And so I ask, are you sure? <laughs> if they're not doing what they should do right now in this moment, what makes you think they're going to change in the future? See, yours and ours is a right now faith. And let me just say this. There is never going to be any more of what we need available to us in the future than there is available to us right now in this moment. Never more available to us to be the people that God has called us to be. Joyful people, generous people, committed people. There's never going to be more of the Word of God. There's never going to be more of the grace of God as if He's been withholding for us. There's never going to be more of God's love, and neither is there going to be less of God's love. There's never going to be more of the Spirit. So what are we waiting for? Why do you think there's going to be more available to you in the future than you have right now in this moment? And so all that to say, do not put off commitment to the future. Don't put off the commitment to stop sinning to the future until all the wild oats are already sown. 
Don't put off obedience to the future. Obey right now as a response to the goodness of God that you've seen and experienced in worship. Commit to love and follow Him now. And so that's the moment we come to. The final part of Deuteronomy law section. It's the moment of commitment. At every wedding I officiate, I say these words every time. You have pledged your love to one another in the presence of Almighty God and these witnesses. You have sealed your solemn marital vows with the giving and receiving of rings and now acting in the authority given to me as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and looking to God for divine sanction, I now proclaim that you are husband and wife. And what God has joined together, let not man therefore put asunder. And so we close this morning with similar words. They're in verses 17 through 19. I want you to receive them as the communication of God's love that they are of His covenant commitment to you and His covenant to be with you and your commitment to obey Him. And so I'm going to ask you to stand again. As we receive these words of commitment, when all the law has been said and done, you have declared this day that the Lord is your God and you will walk in His ways that you will keep His commands and decrees and laws, and that you will obey Him. And the Lord has declared this day that you are His people, His treasured possession, as He promised, and that you are to keep all His commands. He's declared that He will set you in praise, fame and honor, high above all the nations He has made, and that you will be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of covenant commitment. Father, we pray that we would see the covenant in its fullness. That we would not focus only on the beautiful things that the covenant contains for us, the grace, the love, the blessings that you pour out on us in Jesus. Father, help us see the covenant completely, which requires a commitment from us to you. To love you, Lord, with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. That's our covenant obligation to you. So Father, I pray that you will make us faithful to the covenant. We don't need to pray, Lord, for your faithfulness. You've never been and never will be anything other than faithful to your people. So thank you and praise you for that. Help us, Lord, now to live by faith. This covenant relationship that exists between you and us should change us. To make us people of faith who go into the world And tell this covenant relationship that is a reality and that can be theirs as well through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us to live out this covenant by faith now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.